This talk was given by Prabhu Gikhan Vasan. Gikhan is a senior lay student in the Mountains and Rivers Order. This talk, like all of our talks, is offered free of charge. If you'd like to make a donation or find out more about our retreats and residency programs, visit our website at zmm.org. Thanks for listening. Good morning, everyone. Um, my name is Gikhan, and I was asked to offer the talk. Um, I think this is the first time they're doing it in this kind of Zoom platform, so if, if my audio isn't good, just uh, just let me know, and I'll speak up. I'm actually going to keep the chat open, so um, in case uh, the monastery wants to, to chat me about that. Um, oh, good morning. Um, as we were uh, chanting the Gatha, I was actually flipping through the, the, the Zoom, and um, it was just nice to see um, so many faces um, and, and see so many names. A uh, number of whom I recognize, a number of whom I don't, and that's wonderful. You know, if this is your, um, if you're new here, if this is your first time here, uh, welcome. Welcome to uh, this space, this place. Um, I hope this has been a good morning for you. This is from a, um, an interview with um, the, the Reverend Angel Kyoto Williams. And um, later she actually incorporated uh, this, into, this passage into uh, an, uh, an essay she wrote called Your Liberation is on the Line. Um, but this is uh, from the, the interview. I want no part of an illness that renders me unable to be connected to love. I love the very same people that would rather see my body lying in the street. I love the very same people that would make me invisible. I didn't say I like them, but I do love them. That love is not an easy burden. I want to talk about love. And uh, specifically, I, I want to talk about the limits that I, maybe we, place on love and how to maybe um, let some of those limits go. Just some quick context. I, I read this uh, interview uh, a couple of years ago and it has stayed with me since then. Um, and I've been working with it since then. I've uh, found myself calling it up at various points, especially when I uh, read or, or see or encounter or, or um, experience to the extent I have, um, uh, bias or, um, or other abuses of, of identity and power, um, I, I bring it up and I try to work with it. You know, sometimes I will push into it. Sometimes I'll push away from it. Right? I will uh, turn my back on, on what she's talking about. Right? I, I, you know, struggling with this, um, with this unconditional love that, that she describes. And for me, it's important that she uses the word love, right? I love the very same people, et cetera, et cetera, right? She doesn't, um, she doesn't use the word compassion. She doesn't use the word loving kindness. She doesn't refer to Buddha nature. She doesn't refer to inherent perfection. She uses the very simple word love. And to me, that makes it that much more challenging. You know, it would have been easier for me if she had used like, you know, big words or Dharma words. You know, I, I hear them all the time. And in some ways, you know, I, I, I can, probably not a good idea, but I can sort of hold them at a distance, like, you know, and scrutinize them. That, that doesn't work with love. She uses the, one of the few words, maybe the only word, if you really think about it, that, that 
strips away all the other approaches except for entering through the heart. And because of that, it stayed with me. So about a month ago, um, I, I brought this passage into the uh, People of Color group. Um, quick sidebar, we have a, uh, a group for community members who are uh, black, indigenous, or otherwise of color. It meets every other week via Zoom. So if any of you out there um, identify as such, and if you're interested, please do um, um, email the monastery to get some more information about that. Um, so I was uh, facilitating the, the meeting about a month ago, and I brought this passage in, as well as a passage by uh, James Baldwin, which I'll, I'll get to, and I presented it to the group. And I, I posed uh, some questions. How do we love in this current time? Who are we loving? Who are we denying love to? Does the prospect of loving in this way make us afraid? And what does practice have to do with any of this? And the group held, the group held what I brought, right? They, they held the passages, they, they held those questions, but they also challenged me. Um, they wanted me to clarify, why were these questions important to me? And why was I bringing them in? Um, we also talked about concerns about uh, what's sometimes called spiritual bypassing, um, or in the context of our conversation, I guess we could call it even political bypassing, right? That is, um, um, retreating into a comfortable place called love, where we, uh, um, you know, do so kind of um, it, without engaging some of the more difficult feelings um, and the difficult um, work that's needed to be done out there, right? Love as a form of turning away from the world into something much more kind of cushy. Right? So we raised up those concerns. And I think as a whole, you know, we as a group held both the aspiration to love like this and the difficulty or even impossibility in doing so when there has been a history of harm. And for um, certainly for, for people who inhabit black bodies, brown bodies, indigenous bodies, and for other people of color and other people in, in other groups, when that harm stretches back for centuries and, and is ongoing. So first, I just wanted to start by thanking the, the group. Thank you all. For, for holding all of this. Um, our, our conversations and our, our little bit of emailing we did afterwards has been helpful to me and, and is informing this, this talk. So, um, where to begin? In the Pali Canon, the, the, the Buddha, um, there's a collection of sutras called the Connected Discourses of the, of the Buddha, the Samyutta Nikaya, and it's, it's gigantic. It has like close to 3,000 uh, sutras are contained within it. It's really big. Within all of that, the Buddha offers a very, a, a very kind of simple teaching. Um, he says, what is the unconditioned? The ending of desire, the ending of hatred, the ending of delusion. This is called the unconditioned. So as many of us know, desire, hatred, and delusion, uh, we translate it usually as greed, anger, and ignorance. Those are called in Buddhism, the three poisons. And uh, the, the reason they're called that is because they're understood to be the basis of suffering. They are states of mind that um, lead us to experiencing turmoil and to creating turmoil as we move through our day. Um, 
That is, they, they poison us and cause us to poison the world. Right? Hence, they're the, the three poisons. Um, and when they cease, according to this teaching, that cessation is called the unconditioned. Right? So I want to start with this because I, it, it, when I was kind of working with this, it, it occurred to me that if, if I'm going to love unconditionally, this is where it's going to come from. It's going to come, it's going to emerge out of the unconditioned. Now, when we hear words like the unconditioned or similar words like that, you know, it's easy, especially when we're first starting out, to assume that those are very distant things, you know, like, like not even close to there yet, but, you know, I keep practicing, eventually I'll get there. That's not the case. It's um, what the Buddha is referring to is, is not over there. It's, it's here, and I mean that very literally, and in a very practical way. You know, I think that most of us, if we have sat, have, um, have arrived here to one degree or another. Certainly for those of us who've been practicing for a while, maybe, you know, once our, our zazen deepens, you know, there is, that, um, there is that practice we call, you know, um, moving through counting the breath to following the breath to being the breath. Right? We've all, those of us who work with koans or work with, with um, just um, large awareness practices, it's, um, you know, we, I, I think this is something that will probably be um, something we can appreciate. But we don't even have to wait for that. You know, when we're first starting out, you know, when, when, we, when we can't get to the number 10 yet, like, you know, counting the breath, when we're like getting to like the number like four, starting over again, you know, four, three, like for years, like, right? When that's not a problem. Right? So maybe in our longer meditation intensive, when we're just doing this for hours, hitting whatever number we hit, catching our minds, wandering off, letting it go, coming back over and over and over again for hours. And it stops being a problem. We stop judging ourselves. We stop getting mad at ourselves. We stop looking at the number 10, like, oh boy, like if I get to the number 10, um, it's going to be big. All that falls away. And it's just simply practicing. And even if we don't, even if we're not even there, right? Literally, even if we just had beginning instruction, which if you are new here, I hope you have, and we are literally sitting our very first period of zazen, and we, the, the very first time we see our thought and let it go, right there. When we let that thought go, right, there is an instant, right? It might be the, the shortest instant that could be an instant, but there is an instant where the mind isn't preoccupied. And that instant, to the extent that it's big or small, that instant reveals to us who we are when we're not seeking anything. So there's no, um, there's no desire. We're not opposed to anything. So there's no hatred or anger. And we're not fooled by anything because the mind isn't creating anything to be fooled by. So for that moment, there's no delusion either. So I think, you know, this is not a distant thing. This is a very here and now thing. Um, okay, so what's, what's the problem, right? We got it, it's here and now, we got a taste of it. What happens, what goes wrong? The world happens, right? the world goes wrong. Um, I think we all had the experience of getting up from a period of zazen and even that action of getting up, pow, suddenly the mind starts churning. Something happens, right? 
And of course, for those of us who've done session, our long meditation intensives, I think you can relate to this. It's what I call the post-session uh, reality check, right? Or the post-session disappointment. Um, or sometimes, depending on what I encounter, I'm called the post-session atrocity, right? It's when session is over, you know, we're, we're in that groove, it's, it's, it's good, we're in the zone, and suddenly, bang, we, we, we hit something. The, the, or or, or the, we encounter the world. Sometimes it could be the first article that we read. Sometimes it could be, you know, if we're driving back, we got the, you know, we got a podcast on or we got the radio going and, you know, you get a news bulletin. Sometimes it could even be in the dining hall. Like, you know, sometimes I have the experience. I'm done session. I'm in the dining hall. This is back when we could actually do this in person. And I'm having lunch with somebody, somebody who's just coming in for that Sunday program. So they haven't been in session. And they start telling me what's going on in the world. And I'm just like, no, no, just, 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 just stop, stop. You know, part of me is like, just don't, don't, don't hit me with that yet. Right? It was so good for this whole week. Right? It was, it was, it was where I wanted to be. It was where my mind wanted to be. You know, just let me have that for a little bit longer. Right? And so we find ourselves there. Right? The mind um, starts churning. The mind starts getting preoccupied. We begin, depending on what it is, maybe being pulled into reactivity. Right? Begin, we, and we begin uh, um, floundering to an extent. That's an important place. That's an important place to look at. Um, because it's there that our mind, our practice, and our clarity, to the extent that we, 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 you know, we've seen it, meets everything else. Everything else that, that we assume isn't all that, right? Everything else out there, so to speak. So there's a passage by James Baldwin, which I think sort of speaks to this. It's the other passage I brought into the group. Um, this is from a long letter that Baldwin wrote to his nephew. And essentially, you know, he was, in this letter, as I see it, he was trying to help his nephew develop his um, racial and political consciousness because he knew his nephew was going to grow up to be a black man in this world, right, in, in the United States in the 1960s. And being, a, being that himself already, he knew what that meant. And he wanted to make this passage as safe and as clear for his nephew as possible. So in that letter, he writes, the, but he writes the following. He writes a lot, but including this. There is no reason for you to try to become like white people. And there is no basis, whatever, for their assumption that they must accept you. The really terrible thing, old buddy, is that you must accept them. And I mean that very seriously. You must accept them and accept them with love. And later he says, we, with love, shall force our brothers to see themselves as they are, to cease fleeing from reality and begin to change it. You must accept them. In a time of, and in a country of deep racial division, and racial atrocities in a letter full of just incisive analysis and observations. He sends his nephew and us on a deeply inward journey. You must accept them and accept them with love. 
there's only one way to go when to come to terms with that, and that's inside. I know I'm pulling him out of context when I'm going to say this, but I think it's still accurate. I think he's offering exactly what we offer when we, in our um, context, talk about turning the light around or taking the backward step. Um, in the midst of all of that, he's telling his nephew to turn the light around. And this is not, as, as I understand it, bypassing. Baldwin is completely cognizant of what's going on in his world, and he's completely engaging it. I mean, Reverend Angel, and she says it right here. There are people who would rather see her dead in the street. There are people who'd rather see her invisible. I mean, she's acknowledging, right? She's not bypassing here, right? She's acknowledging exactly what's at stake in a very flesh and blood way. Baldwin says, you know, with love, we shall force things, right? So he's not acknowledging what needs to be done. Um, in his posthumous essay, the late civil rights elder John Lewis referred to the power of everlasting love, right? That's an important word he uses there, power, right? Um, yes, there is a lot of work to do out there, but not for this. You know, as I was working with this, um, I, I, I asked myself, what does it take to love like this? In the way that Angel or Baldwin are talking about. And I realized it, it can't take anything from the other person. Because if it does, it becomes conditional. You know, I mean, Reverend Angel, she doesn't say, I'll love these people when they love me back. She doesn't say, I'll love these people when they want to hear my voice, when they stop wanting to make me invisible. She doesn't even say, I'll, I'll love them when they become likable. She even says, I don't like them. Right? In other words, she clears her plate of all of that, of anything that might arise from what she wants to be different, from what she's opposing, from any side she's taking. And she does take, I mean, you know, she does take sides. Right? She does, she's very clear about herself politically. Right? But she clears all that off her plate until as I understand it, all that's left is what's left all that's cleared off her plate. Which is exactly what we touch into when we let go of our preoccupations even for a little bit. And let me say that for me anyway, this does not feel good. The prospect of opening my heart to those who hate my heart feels terrible. Um, when I used to work as a, as a psychotherapist, um, one of my clients um, was active in the, in the cat rescuing community and they specialized in biting cats um, and rescuing, fostering them. And so occasionally they would come to session with their hand like wrapped up in a, in a bandage. And uh, so once I asked them, what's wrong with your hand? And they said that the way they learn to get the, that trust of that cat is by offering the cat their hand. And if that cat wants to bite their hand, they would let that cat bite their hand. And they actually peeled off the bench to show me the bite marks. 
And they said that, you know, that's this way and the cat needs to learn that they're not going to strike back, that that's okay. Um, I don't know enough about cats or cat rescuing to argue for or against this practice. Um, so I'm not saying you should do this at home. Um, but that's what it feels like. That's what this prospect feels like, right? It feels like I'm about to put my very mortal and very soft and very woundable self into the teeth of something that could be vicious. And I just want to acknowledge here um, that the closer you are to really experiencing that viciousness on a, in your life, the harder this is going to be. Um, I read this on Facebook a while back, um, I, I, so I, but I forget the attribution, so I apologize. But um, it was something that said, um, you know, when white people are ignorant of white supremacy, they're still able to thrive in their life. When black people are ignorant of white supremacy, it can prove fatal. Right? To me, that's a very quick litmus test of privilege and safety. And depending on where you locate yourself, right? I have located myself on that, this is going to be more difficult. Right? So I just want to acknowledge that what, what I'm saying, I should have probably acknowledged this before, but that what I'm saying here really um, comes, will be easier for some people than others. That's just, um, um, that's just a fact. And yet, as we observed in the group, here are two people, Reverend Angel, um, James Baldwin, two people who were, for Baldwin and Angel, who are living in black skin. And both of whom are nonetheless directing us in. Bringing us to that exact place that practice brings us to. So we need to start here, right? We sort of, in some ways, you know, we've come back to, um, we've come back full circle. Um, we need to start at the exact place where poison is created and at the exact place where it can cease. And for me, you know, this was, um, this has been a revelation, actually, in some ways, you know, that, that quote by Baldwin, you must accept them. When I really began to work with it, I began to realize, and this is just based on my history, um, part of which is a history of privilege, is that whenever I encounter or read about bias, my, my default is to say, why can't you accept me? That is, you know, and, and in some ways, as I was kind of sitting with this, I realized I, I was seeing how my mind works with this. I think I've talked about this before. Sometimes what I'll do is I'll sit zazen and then I'll just drop um, an article or an image or something that I've read or encountered and just seeing what my mind does with it. You know, I, I saw how I have learned to accommodate or try to align myself with power, even when that is not the right thing to do. Uh, and I saw the, the need for safety that that comes out of, um, as well as everything else, right? Um, the ways I can rationalize things, the ways I can dissociate from things, fantasies of my own power, fantasies of my own capacity for violence, winning and losing, me versus them, right? Essentially, I was able to see 
everything that I place between my heart and the world and the teeth. And, of course, I was also able to see my teeth. You know, one of the, well, I, I, I sort of need to apologize to the, the people of color group because in some ways I, for, I forgot to bring in the most basic question of all, um, which is what would it be like to be loved in the way that Angel is talking about? You know, I think it's very easy, especially as Dharma practitioners, we always have to go from the end of, well, I am the one who has to do the loving. And yeah, okay. But there's also another piece right, that I think is equally as important. And that is, what would it be like to be loved like this? You know, and so, you know, um, one of the ways I've been working with that is within my Zazen to bring up maybe people or a group of people who I would like to render invisible or worse. And then just seeing what would it be like if those very same people were to love me in this way. Right? I love you even though you'd rather make me invisible, even though you'd rather see us lying in the street. We might not like you, but we do love you. We're willing to carry that burden. We accept, or in terms of Baldwin, we accept you and we accept you with love. And in doing so, you know, I'm, I'm, for me anyway, might be different for you guys, but for me, that's a difficult place to push into, almost as difficult as when I'm, the one needing to do the loving, right? Because it means that I need to come to terms with my own teeth and my need to hold on to that. And what it would be like to defang myself in the face of that kind of love. And seeing, so seeing all that, like entering that space of practice, that space where we can see all of that. What then? You must accept them and accept them with love. Anything else would be putting something else in its place. You know, I think this practice, for me anyway, it really is about starting with the thems inside. All the parts of me that I wish weren't there, all the parts of me that I would love to make invisible or that I would love to just, you know, get rid of altogether. Starting with that and bringing that heart of you must accept them into there. Because, you know, un until we reach that point, for me anyway, I really was sort of still in the realm of trying to figure out who's good and who's bad and getting rid of the bad parts in me and trying to hold on to the good parts. And of course, that's exactly what I was doing in the world as well. Right? If we can just get rid of all those groups, all those people, all those viewpoints, we'll be great. Right. Um, and I think by doing this, we move from that place to the much more central question that Buddhism takes up, which is how does suffering come about? How does suffering arise? How do the poisons arise? You know, I was reading, the, there's a sutra called the Maha Sakaka Sutra, and the Buddha, in it, the Buddha was basically um, recounting his spiritual journey to a, a person named Sakaka. And 
it was interesting that, you know, there's a certain point in his spiritual journey, um, right after he finished studying with his teachers and when he was struggling for a way to go further, when he was actually locked in the struggle with himself, where he was really, and he says this too, it's really interesting. I don't have the quote with me, but he says, you know, he was trying to crush, like choke, crush, and like destroy parts of his mind. Right. And like, and he uses an analogy, like a weaker man, like a stronger man might take a weaker man by the head or the throat or the shoulders and try to choke and crush him. I was trying to choke and crush my mind. And when I read that, I'm just like, like this is the Buddha, you know? And it, you know, and it occurred to me that if what he was describing was happening between two people, right, we would call it intimate partner violence. We would call it police brutality. We called state-sanctioned violence. We would certainly call it assault. And all that was happening inside of him. And he was able to see that very clearly, what he was doing to himself. And I just, I, I sort of asked myself, given that, what must he have been like to the people around him at that point in his development? If that's the way he was approaching what was happening in him, right? These parts are bad. I have to choke and crush and destroy them. We know what he was like later in his life when he was serene and had achieved equanimity and clarity. He was serene and clear and equanimous with people who he encountered, even people who were very aggressive towards him. But what would have been like in this case? I, I imagine he would have done in some capacity exactly what he was doing to himself. Because at that time, I think, he was still locked into the struggle of us versus them good versus bad. And it was only when he was able to see all of that and allow for all of that and accept all of that, that he was able to arrive at the much more fundamental question and answer to the question, how does suffering arise? And he saw it very clearly. And to the extent that we can see it clearly, the, the heart breaks, my heart breaks when I can see it clearly. And it's in that breaking, I think, that I can take uh, uh, some more steps forward into that love, into love. So what's breaking are the limits that I put on that love. So I want to um, sort of move to a close with a, a line from the writer, and I believe she's also a Buddhist practitioner, Bell Hooks. Um, this is from an interview she gave a couple of years ago. She said, anytime we do the work of love, we are doing the work of ending domination. There's a lot in that quote that I really like. The first is that she refers to the work of love. Right? This is what Angel means, I think, when she says this is a burden. Or when Baldwin says, we need to use this to force things. Or when Lewis talks about the power of everlasting love, right? This is not the easy love that, um, I mean, I, I told the POC group at the end of our meeting that so much of what I thought I knew about love was wrong, right, after working with this. What was wrong was the easy, I thought it was easy. You know, it, it always feels good, right? It's, um, this is work. And the second thing about this is 
the fact that she said, when we're doing it, we're doing the work of ending domination. In other words, this is also political. It might not feel that way. And when we're loving like this, it probably shouldn't feel that way, right? Because that's just another mental construct, right? But it is political. You know, some of, some of us might recall that recently Senator Tom Cotton from Arkansas described slavery as a necessary evil upon which the union was built. That word necessary is so poisonous because what it basically assumes is that that's the only way things could have happened and things could have functioned. That is, you know, greed, right? The, the cotton trade, the economy, greed making human beings into chattel, just hatred, and the complete ignorance that was based on had to have been there, right? It was necessary. I think the great offering of Buddhism is the realization that this is completely incorrect. It is not accurate. All of that didn't need to be there. It doesn't need to be here. And it offers practices where we can see who we are and what reality is when those things aren't there. So I think we are entering a particularly challenging time within an overall challenging time, right? We are weeks away from schools opening and all of the challenges that's gonna bring. We're weeks away from flu season on top of COVID, right? And in my field of public health, you know, I, I, I sort of get a sense of what that's going to do to our healthcare system. And we're months away from an election that um, if the last one was any indication is going to bring up a lot of discord and division in this country. And in the face of all of that, you know, we should expect to be challenged, spiritually challenged, challenged as practitioners. We're challenged with urgencies and actions that we need to take in the world that can also make us bring out the, the worst in us. Right? That can also bring out parts of us that we wish weren't there. So Buddhism, as well as other writers, like the ones I've just said, who either are Buddhists or not, have offered ways to work with this. They've offered a vision of what we can be when we, when we take this up. So um, I don't have a big ending for this. I just wanted to encourage everybody to practice in this way, um, especially over the next few months. Um, it's work. You know, it's, it's labor, but, but it's a labor of love, right? And I think maybe that's what, as we deepen our practice, comes out, is that this labor is a labor of love. So... Thank you very much, everyone. Thank you for your attention. Thanks for listening. Did you know that Zen Mountain Monastery is live streaming all Dharma talks and daily Zazen during the coronavirus quarantine? Visit our website to learn about all the online programs being offered at this time. Just go to zmm.org and click on the link at the very top of the page, or scroll down and click on Retreats.